Will Tasker. Don't think I caught your name. Matt Owens. To the Rattler. What brings you here? I'm a businessman. Buy and sell things. Yeah? What kind of things? Might be interested. Well, I just lucked into some nice military hardware. Step into my office. What are you in the market for? How about a charging pump? Usable air cartridges? Some nice uh, spare muzzle plugs? Uh, you know, these days, most people want to take the law into their own hands just so they can break it. Terrible, isn't it? Yeah. I think I'm going to have to turn this in. Wait a second. Who the hell do you think you are? The law. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time blew away. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time windrider, Andrew Phillips. <laughs> and in the... <laughs> you had to take it that far, didn't you? <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> and in the build-up to the release of Star Wars Episode 7: The Force Awakens, today we begin the first of three Star Wars-themed episodes. In order to qualify, the films we cover must share credits with the original Star Wars trilogy, for example, actor or producer credits. And the first film we're covering today shares both, as we're discussing Steven Lisberger's Slipstream, a film that failed so hard it slipped into the public domain and can now be streamed online for free. But before all that, here's the trailer. Slipstream, the future. A river of turbulent wind has swept the skies and nature has reclaimed the planet. In the desolate wasteland that remains, a mysterious fugitive is pursued and captured by a brutal lawman and his feisty tracker. When a wily bounty hunter grabs their prisoner. What the hell happened here? Mr. Rowan here thinks he's going to take our prisoner. They vow to track him to the edge of existence. Poison guy. Now drop the gun and we'll talk about getting you the antidote. I never believe a man staring down the barrel of a gun. <laughs> Well, you should this time. Now, it's a race against time across dangerous territory. This is forbidden territory. What are you doing? You're under arrest. Dollar. Let's <laughs> show them what we got, boys. This is what hell is. You're stuck in a place like this forever. I can help you. A battle of wits in an unknown land. I'll give you the antidote. Then I'll shoot you. That's what I like. Teamwork. A sense of fair play. You've misled them about us. So how can we know you're not misleading us about them? Go to hell! It's our next stop! A test of courage under fire. I should kill you right now is what I should do. And this time there will be no prisoners. Slipstream. Gary Kurtz attempts to capture the heights of Star Wars with Slipstream, a post-apocalyptic sci-fi film starring Mark Hamill as Rutger Hauer. <laughs> In a world decimated by strong winds, <laughs> mankind survives in small pockets, hiding from the harsh elements in caves and valleys. The only way to travel between these desperate pockets of humanity is to take flight and brave the Slipstream. There are also bounty hunters, androids, and aerial dogfights in this film that's totally nothing like Star Wars, guys. <laughs> but does Kurtz's epic fly high or come crashing down to earth? That's the question we intend to answer today. Indeed he do. So, Andy, you nominated Slipstream for today's episode. Yeah, I did. And it's the first, as I said, of our Star Wars-themed episodes. Yeah. Can you tell us both how it qualifies and why you chose it? Yeah. Well, it qualifies in quite a number of ways. This is a Mark Hamill starring film. In fact, it's the first major motion picture that Mark Hamill starred in since Return of the Jedi. He actually had a six-year hiatus from starring in any films. I think he mainly did Broadway yeah. and started doing his voiceover stuff during the mid part of the 80s and then decided to come back into the film with this one. This was meant to be his triumphant return and the film that would have prevented him from being typecast in films as yeah. a Luke Skywalker type character. In another aspect, this is produced by Gary Kurtz, who produced the first two Star Wars films. And this was almost meant to do the same thing. Um, yeah. This was a film that was meant to take them to higher planes or 
reestablish who these guys were in the filmmaking world and it did none of those things no it did not no uh, <laughs> it almost did like the opposite it kind of reversed their careers yeah quite a lot i mean gary kurtz never quite recovered but we'll get into that yeah. later I think. yeah this is actually my first time with slipstream i had never seen it before and i have you to thank for this masterpiece making it to my <laughs> eyeballs well i just found it by accident as well because i had never knew this film existed because there's not much on this film in terms of what you can actually find out about it but i just found it by accident i was just looking up star wars one day happened to click on mark hamill in wikipedia yeah and just looked at his filmography and obviously there's a big gap in between return of the jedi and any other films that he did, because I always wondered what happened to Mark Hamill. Why did he become a voiceover actor? What happened to his film career? Yeah, and this because... film pretty single-handedly explains why. But obviously, because it follows Jedi, it just stuck out in my mind. So I clicked on it and then discovered what had happened to this film, and it just fascinated me. I've never heard of a film of this type that nobody owns anymore. Yeah, it's yeah, weird. It just slipped into the public domain. So um, yeah, I just thought it would be a fascinating one to explore. And we have covered Forgotten Films on this podcast, but I think this is probably the furthest we've gone in terms of really reaching into obscurity and yeah, pulling something really up. Yeah, we've reached into that slipstream. <laughs> but honestly, I, um, I had never even heard of this film before until you mentioned it for this yeah. podcast. It is the most forgotten film we've ever covered. Yeah. And it's doubly bizarre considering who's in it yes. as well. It's it's not a film that stars one known actor and then everyone else is just unknowns and this is a proper full-on B-movie. This is an A-list movie. This was intended to be an A-list movie. It really was, you can tell. With A-list stars mm -hmm. and for whatever reason it's become a little-known B-movie or a C-movie really. Yeah. Because it's not even bargain bin because you can't <laughs> even get it on DVD. No, this is the type of film that I've described as being... You'll find it in newsagents in the bargain bins, not even in like your HMVs or anything <laughs> like that. This is a mail order. Yeah, yeah. This is the type of film that you find in a box set that says 50 sci-fi movies for $10. In fact, there are a couple of box sets that you can find this film in. Exactly. I like I, that. I'm yeah. not surprised. I'm yeah. not surprised. So before we get into the film, we always like to provide a little history here on Best Forgotten Movies. And in order to do so, first we must go as far back as Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. Yes, indeed. Which is the last film that Gary Kurtz worked with George Lucas on. Yeah, because he'd done a couple of films in the early 70s and he'd worked on American Graffiti yeah. and Star Wars with George. We'll call him George Yeah, in this one, because <laughs> everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah, I think everything started to go a bit pear-shaped during the making of Empire, and we're never really 100% sure of what exactly happened, because every single book you read about this, there's always a different version of events. I'd imagine they're all partially true. Yeah, and George himself is quite an unreliable narrator as well, yes. because his story changes with every book release or every interview. Yeah. <laughs> so, never quite sure. <laughs> In its simplest terms, I think they just had a difference of opinion and a falling out, clash of yeah. personalities. I actually have on. a quote from mm. Gary Kurtz about his relationship with George Lucas and about why they split because it was quite acrimonious as well. He did say, There were many different things as to why they split. Partly it was a problem of George changing his mind and wanting to do a more action-adventure rollercoaster ride like Indiana Jones rather than continue the story that they had set up with Empire Strikes Back. So that leads me to believe that Gary Kurtz was still on board, or at least still thought he was, after the making of Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Even though if you read some of the books, it sounds like he left about halfway through the production. The, I think maybe with one of those things where... He maybe wasn't aware of the fact that he was leaving, but everyone else knew that he was. Yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. It was like, yeah, this guy's on his way out. But um, he ended up vacating Empire at some point during the end of its production and didn't come back for Return of the Jedi. But immediately following Empire, went on to produce The Dark Crystal for Jim Henson. And Return to Oz for Disney. Yeah, he executive produced Return to Oz with Walter Murch. Ah, oh, right. So it's obviously all part of the same family. Yes. And then following that, this was meant to be his big return to sci-fi filmmaking where he was the auteur in a way. This is yeah. Gary Kurtz's film in a way, more so than Steven Lisberger's. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's like him returning to a genre that he helped redefine. Mm. And so there's a lot of weight attached to it that way. Yeah. If you read anything anyway, it does sound like it's a Gary Kurtz picture, not a Steven Lisberger yeah. picture, who many will know as the director of Tron. And this is almost Kurtz trying to do a mini Lucas film. Yeah. Because not much is known about how this film film came to be other than the fact that this is a production bankrolled and spearheaded by gary kurtz this is not a studio picture at all no and this will explain quite a lot of things in terms of why this has been forgotten 
one of the main problems is that this is not a studio film. This is an independent film. It's really strange to think of independent films being this big in terms of budget. Yeah. So much so that it pretty much crippled Gary Kurtz. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even on Empire Strikes Back, it was touch and go for a while then because they didn't have the safety net yeah. of a studio behind them that people weren't sure whether or not they would be able to finish the film. Yeah. And I think that's where Gary Kurtz actually faltered as a producer, if, according to the books. Yeah, anyway, it's, that- it's, it's weird that he decided to go down this route again because it's almost like he didn't learn from the experience of making Empire. Yeah, because it sounds like he was under immense pressure making Empire and couldn't quite deliver. Yeah. Yet on this one, it's almost like he's challenged himself. It's returning to an old fear and saying, oh, I can get through this. I can do it on this level. Yeah, and it's weird as well because it's not even as if in the 80s they'd had an established track record because, yeah, he'd done Star Wars and Empire, but Dark Crystal and Return to Oz, they all failed at the box office. So it's not even as if he had the chops as an independent producer to actually come and do this production. It almost speaks volumes as to why this film is self-funded. Yeah. And it couldn't have come at a worse time for him. So yeah, moving on a little bit, Steven Lisberger was hired as a director for Slipstream. Mm. And like I said before, many know him from Tron. And also in terms of the cast, Gary Kurtz has surrounded himself with A-listers that are recognisable from popular sci-fi films at the time. Mm. So it seems he's putting together this collection of known sci-fi figures. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a greatest hits. Yeah, it is. People, really. <laughs> but I always think it's strange that he hired Steven Lisberger as the director considering that Tron was something of a financial flop as well for Disney. Mm. The fact that it took 30 years to make a sequel goes to show just yeah. how much of a flop it was. Yeah. It may have grown in cult success since, but at that time, it wasn't really known as being a success. Not at all. I mean, that's the thing. Until the build-up to Tron Legacy, when people started coming out of the woodwork and saying, oh, yeah, the original Tron was a classic. Before then, I always knew it as a film that, okay, yeah, it kind of push forward the advent of computer graphics being used in films yeah. or even or, although even then it was an oddity because it took another 10 years for that to really come into play it's got some interesting visuals but it's kind of a dull film yeah it's not a particularly exciting film even the visuals aren't particularly exciting in terms of what they do with all this technology it's not the most exciting film of all time that approach slips into this film as well i think as a director steven lisberger's rather dull yeah i mean like say there's some visual quirkiness Mm. to tron but if i'm absolutely honest it kind of gives me a headache to look at yeah and it's kind of plain Mm. in terms of that world yeah there's not much flair to it no. It's almost like they've come up with this one technique of uh, almost like it, it's, it's paint, isn't it? Yeah, well, what it was, it was when they um, made the film, they shot the film, the, all the computer segments in black and white. Yeah. What they did, it's almost like an animated film. All the photos, yeah. they actually printed frame photo by stats frame. Yeah. and painted them frame by frame and then reshot them, which is why it has a really strange look. It had literally been re-photographed and literally has been um, hand-touched up. Yeah. That sounds wrong. But yeah, it's literally <laughs> been... Everything's been hand-painted and reshot again yeah. to give it that look. But even so, what they do with the central idea is not particularly exciting. No, no. It's, it's a visually interesting idea, but it doesn't do much with it. No. And there's not much variety. No. You do kind of get bored to it, especially now looking back at it. Definitely. Obviously, we've got to add the context of when it was made and how different it was then. But there's not enough done with that world. And uh, I think Steven Lisberger as a director, like you say, he doesn't really have much in his arsenal no. in terms of exciting audiences. And Slipstream, again, yeah, it falls into a very similar quandary. It's Yeah, definitely. It's kind of dull. Yeah. So all in all, despite this, it's still something of an A-list assembly in regards to the production crew and the actors. But did this all come together in a way to create a worthwhile film? Or is Slipstream nothing more than a lot of hot air. (laughs) I think it's time for us to actually start discussing the film and start discussing what the fuck Slipstream is about and where this idea came from. In terms of what the film represents, it can't really pin down what it wants to say about this world. No. You're left by the end going, what was that meant to depict? Yeah. Because even the Slipstream itself is not represented particularly well. I found it very ill-defined. Yeah. Because even when the film had finished, I didn't quite know what was going on with this world. And I had to look at Wikipedia to find out a few extra tidbits about what the intentions were 
behind the creation of this world. And to introduce it to our listeners, because I doubt anybody has actually seen this film. <laughs> it's another post-apocalyptic film. It's the third in a row. Yeah, this is, in the, terms the, of this is the final films. part in our yeah. post-apocalyptic trilogy. <laughs> but the world has been destroyed by natural disasters. Yeah, and the continents have like fused together as well. And there's this great storm that's continuing to just batter the earth. Mm. So nobody's really able to travel anymore mm. because the wind will kill you. Only the best pilots are able to traverse the slipstream in their mm. planes. That's the only mode of transportation that's available to people. Yeah. And it seems humanity is just left in pockets about the world, different civilizations almost. Some of them are really advanced, another one's not so much. They're yeah. almost living like barbarians. And this is the idea that it sets up, but it never really pays off. This is a film in a way that almost has too many ideas to play with. Yeah. There's so many different things in this film that you could just explore on their own. Mm -hmm. That they're all half-baked and they're all half-assed. Yeah. And they never really come together in any meaningful way. In the midst of all this, you've got Mark Hamill as this Will Tasker character who's... He's a bounty hunter. Well, he is a bounty hunter, but he's also like he's clinging on to some sort of concept of the law. Yeah. And he's dishing out the law. But there's no real authority there. There's nothing to ground him in that way because we never see anything or any kind of central authority. So he's literally out on his own. He's a lot unto himself. Mm. We'd never really get to find out who he belongs to as a group. No. It seems that he's just a loner. Or even who he's reporting to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And to just take it a little bit further. We never find out who he's taking his bounty to. No. We never no. really get an idea of where that's going. He kind of just comes across as a crazy guy who's just deluded into thinking that he's this policeman. Yeah. <laughs> really, he's, just, he's had an, a bump on the head and just thought he's a lawman mm -hmm. <laughs> or something like that and the sheriff in this place. And um, yeah, I mean, like I said, there's so many ill-defined things in this film, I can't even begin to start about it. Yeah, it's because not only do we have this post-apocalyptic world where society is entirely fallen apart, but we also have androids on the run as well. Yeah. Which is just a completely out of left field that, idea that's to another throw story. in. It's a yeah. different film. Mm. It's like somebody took a vague idea of Mad Max and fused it with Blade Runner. Yeah. And that's what they were going for. They even mentioned Blade Runner or Electric Sheep yeah, by name dreaming those electric reference sheep. later. I mean, that's what I think. In terms of what they're trying to do with the story, the story itself is somewhat of a greatest hits package. Yeah. They've tried to fuse together, but it's all been fumbled and bungled together. It never really forms its own identity because of it. No. Because it's just trying to just plan all these sci-fi cliches and elements that are going on, but it doesn't really have anything else to say. No. And to put my cards on the table, I did not like Slipstream. Mm. But I do see that there is some potential in a couple of the ideas. But even they seem to have been cribbed from other sources. Mm. Like I said, you've got Mad Max, you've got Blade Runner, you've even got a little bit of like Midnight Run in there, mm. which I know only came out the year before, but still it gave me that feeling of people on the run. There's mm. a chase going on. And yeah, obviously it's got Star Wars in there as well, just a little bit. Yeah. It's quite divorced from Star Wars in terms of the way it looks, but I felt mm. it was dealing with a few of the same ideas. You've got these, not quite dogfights, but there's a real heavy flight element to this film. Yeah. But I don't think it ever pays off at no. all. No. But I never think it ever rises above any of its inspirations, and it never does anything unique with those ideas. No. So although there are potential in a couple of the ideas they're playing with, other films did it better. Yeah, it really, they're trying to go with this road movie in the air. Yeah. That's what Steven Lisberger described it as in the making of documentary, which is curious. There's actually a making of documentary on YouTube. Bizarrely, considering when we go into the theatrical release and video release of this film, this had a separate video release. They released this makeup documentary as a separate video really? at some point in the 90s. I'd imagine it didn't sell very well. <laughs> no. But it's now available to view in all its 24-minute long glory. And it's very insightful because I think this is another situation where all the people involved obviously thought they were in a much better film than they're yeah. actually making because the kind of people that it's managed to attract and even just how they're talking about the film just in terms of its general concepts and what they're going for and the ambitions of the film and even where it's been made it just feels like everyone's on a much higher wavelength than the actual end result yeah and i'm not quite sure what's gone wrong whether it's before during or after i think probably all of them yeah 
And I can see why they let their emotions get the better of them almost in mm. this documentary because this is an A-lister crew. We just said that. Mm. I mean, even in terms of post-production, they brought on the likes of Terry Rowlings and Elmer Bernstein to do the score. Yeah. So... I can see how people get carried away in that way because there must be no way in their mind that this can turn out as anything less than exhilarating. Mm. They have no idea just how dull this film's going to be. Yeah, and (laughs) because it's got all these ideas and it doesn't quite know how to merge them all together, the film becomes quite episodic. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, there's no real story. The whole film is just a chase. It starts and it ends and they meet different people along the way. Some of these cultures are so distinct or so different from each other. It's almost like we wandered into different films when we go to each one. Like the whole sequence with Ben Kingsley is a complete different film to the one with F. Murray Abraham. Yeah. And none of them really talk to each other. No, some of them are even secret societies. Oh, yeah. Are completely closed off from the outside yeah, world. Yeah. I mean, most of these societies are closed off from each other. But I never get the sense why, Mm. because we are led to believe that it's a hard place to travel out in the open, and that the slipstream itself is a very dangerous thing to try and traverse. Yeah, and unforgiving. Yeah, but people travel it with ease. Mm. So why is society so closed off from each other? Yeah, our main characters never seem to have any difficulty in flying the slipstream, and even when they have any difficulty, it's not usually with the wind themselves, it's usually with the engine or something else. It's not to do with the natural environment around them. Mm -hmm. And even the landscape itself doesn't feel particularly threatening. No, no, because it feels like it's just been shot in Wales or the Lake District or Ireland. Yeah, this is a film that's been mainly shot in Ireland and has had certain parts of it notably the ben kingsley themed stuff yeah that's all been shot in turkey in a quite a distinct part of the world but it doesn't do anything interesting with those landscapes no because you never get a sense that it really is a dangerous landscape or that anything has really happened to this landscape it looks just as it would if you were to go to northern ireland or like i say to the lake district yeah it just looks like a normal landscape yeah and it looks perfectly fine yeah if the film opened with a city in ruins and you get a sense that it's dangerous to be about. People are having a real hard time traveling up here. Then, yeah, okay, I'd get it. But this literally just starts off with a man running across the countryside. Yeah, you needed some reference of remnants of the old society. Yeah. But there's nothing to represent that. You know what film I think actually did this idea better? Mm. And it's not often that I give Paul W.S. Anderson credit. (laughs) But Soldier deals with a very similar idea that you have this little society that live on this planet that is completely and utterly battered with these storms. Yeah. And you get a sense that it's much harder to live there than it is in this film. Yeah. So it's not often that Paul W.S. Anderson gets credit for anything, but I'm going to give him some here. Yeah. Bizarrely, Soldier's an unofficial sidequel to Blade Runner. Yeah, so it has some connections. It's weird. (laughs) Really weird. But uh, yeah, no one's really gone. This is a post-apocalyptic landscape. We need some remnants of the old world. The closest you get to it is when we go to the poor man's cantina bar at the start of the film. Yeah. (laughs) And um, we see this airstrip that's been created out of junk, but there's nothing else there. I mean, even when we go to the the later, the hedonist society at Mm -hmm. the end of the film, the last third of the film, it's all too pristine. It's all too well-preserved to function as a realistic portrayal of that kind of society. It kind of veers off into into Zardas territory there. Yeah, it would be good if they were trying to still be ahead in a society and still trying to hold on to that and the kind of luxuries of the old world. Mm. But they were having a hard time doing that, so the clothes were tattered, they looked dirty. They were turning it into the savages that roamed the world. Yeah. But they were still trying to claim something of the old world. Mm. I would have liked to have seen something like that because it is hinted at in the film that, for instance, the air conditioners stopped working. That seems to be the biggest kind of problem. The air conditioner's not working. Peril. We're going to be too warm. Oh. (laughs) Real problems. Yeah. This script deals with real problems. Yeah. And, um,. I don't think I've ever seen a film that's been so ill-defined from the start because it doesn't know what it wants to be or what it wants to say or anything. And I found it just completely incoherent. Yeah. I found it a little bit hard to follow at times because there were characters that were just coming in and out of the film. For instance, they meet a character halfway through, I think, Ariel. Yeah. She appears out of nowhere Mm. and they treat her like she's a main character that's been there for quite a while. I guess it has that road movie feel of it where Mm. the... They're bumping into people, but you never get a sense of that. You never get a sense of adventure, I guess, either. No, I mean, there's bits of the film that I think are missing. Yeah. I know some of the bits weren't even shot 
And that's from Gary Kurtz himself, that some of the crucial bits that were actors' connective tissue weren't even shot. I'm not surprised. There's so many odd tangents as well. Yeah. There's little odd tangents um, that don't need to be there. I think that's it. I think that's the problem I had in terms of making it incoherent because there are tangents where I was thinking, what does this mean? Does this add anything? Is mm. there any information in this scene that I'm supposed to take on to the rest of the film? Because it feels completely superfluous. Yeah. And also it means that you get, I mean, we're going to talk about this later with the performances, but it's got a few cameo roles as well for people yeah. turn up just to deliver a line or two and then die. This is a film that's just chock full of superfluous things. Yeah. You could probably boil the actual film down to about half an hour oh easily and the rest yeah. of the film's just full of these odd tangents and scenes with these actors that don't need to be there mm-hmm. and then there's other bits that just stylistically are just completely unrelated I mean this is a word that I use quite a lot and I wrote down quite a lot watching this film and that is the word tone because <laughs> uh, each segment of this film has a completely different tone yeah and for a film that's meant to be a PG family action adventure oh, film. Oh, I, I found myself asking some... a few times w- whether or not this was really meant for kids, mm. if it was supposed to be a family-friendly adventure. Yeah, and there's several moments in the film where I'm just going, Buh? Yeah. Some really <laughs> odd moments. <sighs> there's nothing in this film that works. No. Nothing. No, 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 there's... I can't... I mean, the only thing that vaguely works is Bob Peck's character. Yes, he's the best character in the film, and it's primarily because of his performance. Yeah. There are a couple of things I like about the character, but by and large, it's very sci-fi stock. Yeah. It's something that you would read in countless sci-fi short stories. Yeah. It doesn't break the mold at all. Yeah. But his performance is fantastic. Yeah, it's Bob Peck that makes that character, and yeah, he's literally the best thing in the whole film. Yeah. He's like the through line. He's the thing that everyone's after. He's Mm -hmm. like the... He's the bounty. So he's an android that's on the run yeah he's killed his master and mark hamill's character wants to take him to the authorities Mm. that's the setup really and the rest of the film has this android character ruminating on the ideas of what it is to be human what it is to kill what it is to live and what it is to have emotions and again this is all very stock (laughs) yeah and he's the only character who comes along and tries to help the situation he's the only one that's helpful to these other cultures that we meet he's the only one that heals or repairs damage or he's the healer he's meant to be almost like the Jesus Christ figure I mean they even Mm -hmm. nail it on the head in the middle of the film and they actually literally crucify him on a kite yeah even though he's the strongest character and he's played the best I still don't quite know what he's about or what what he's meant to be there and what that part's meant to be saying yeah there's still not enough there no um i mean i don't even feel we even find out why he kills his master or i thought i had missed that i honestly yeah. when the film ended i thought oh, i probably just zoned out and missed that piece of information because i remember him saying that the person that he killed was his master yeah that's revealed towards the end of the film yeah but i never get a sense of why it's vaguely hinted at i think at one point that the master may have asked him yeah like death. he was dying or something like that and he sort of was almost like voluntary euthanasia which is a very similar thing to what irobot deals with as well yeah there's things missing with that character and i like the relationship that he has with elena david's character the aerial character but even that's not particularly fully formed and to be honest the strongest moment in the whole film is when she gets killed there's a line where he's like he's saying that he's lost yeah now that's probably the strongest part in the whole film and that's all down to Bob Peck's performance, really. It is, yeah. And um, there's parts of Bob Peck's performance that transcend what that character is, but everyone else is just sort of coasting on yeah. what their character archetype is. And just to kind of elaborate further on what the story is or the setup is. So, yeah, Bob Peck plays an android. He's on the run. He killed his master. Mark Hamill's the bounty hunter bringing him in. And Bill Paxton's character, who's this roguish... Well, he's Bill Paxton. It's the same character that Bill Paxton played in every film from the 80s. Yeah, well, it's Bill Paxton playing the role of Han Solo. Yeah, really, it, is. it is. It is. Yeah, it's Han Solo through way of Bill yeah. Paxton, yeah. And he steals his bounty from under Mark Hamill's nose. And so the great chase begins. And talking about this chase for a <laughs> and second. And what a dull chase it is. It really is. <laughs> but talking about this chase, like you say, it is really dull. Simply, Mark Hamill's character shoots a dart into bill paxton which is a tracking device Uh, and they're going to follow this tracking signal but considering how easy this sounds like it is going to be for them to catch up with them it takes him for fucking ever yeah to ever catch up with bill paxton there's no tension in this chase at all there's no moment where you're going oh they're going to catch up with them they need to get away now yeah it's just like oh they're here yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> they're here. There's no sense of foreboding. But there's so many problems with the story anyway. There's this whole subplot involving the dart. Yeah. That's meant to be poisonous, but it's not. And it is or it isn't. We find out later that it is poisonous. But that whole subplot just disappears. Yeah, it does. Throughout the film, we find out that Matt, which is Bill Paxton's character, could have died from this poison dart. And the fact that it's actually technically Bolitsky's, who's Mark Hamill's assistant, it's her turning point in the film that she actually shoots him with the antidote. Yeah. But even that is just bungled and it's very unclear. Yeah, let's talk about Tone for a second. Oh, let's go God. back to Tone yeah, because to t- oh. their relationship is what left me thinking... Much in the same way that Waterworld left me thinking, oh, that's a film for kids. This one did as well. Because their relationship is quite (laughs) strange and left me very uncomfortable. To be honest, all of Bill Paxton's relationship with any female character in this film has many tonal issues. There's actually about four different female characters that he comes into contact with. Yeah. And they're all inappropriate. They really are. (laughs) Especially this one, as it kind of culminates with him pretty much knocking her out in one of the most hilarious knockouts I've ever seen. (laughs) I, I could not stop laughing. Then he handcuffs her to a bed. And then he kind of forces himself on her. Which she protests a lot of the time. Yeah. Like, I was squirming in my seat. Yeah. It, I think we should call that our classic Goldfinger scene. It is. Yeah, because it's yeah. very similar to Bond and Honor Blackman. Yeah. 50 no's and a yes. 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 <laughs> yeah, thank you, Family Guy, for that one. Yeah. It's like she's meant to have the turning point the scene before. Yeah. But then she becomes that old character again in this scene, which mm-hmm. makes it uncomfortable. But then the next time we see her, they're all lovey-dovey. Yeah. I don't understand what happened there. It's almost yeah. like... And at that point, is... her partner's been killed. Yeah. This scene, the, the, the last scene with Bill Paxton and, and Kitty Elrich's character, which is Bolitsky, their last scene looks like the last scene of the sequel to this film. Yeah. Like they've been through another adventure and bonded and fallen in love with each other. But not this film. No. no. <laughs> it's like there's a whole other 40 minutes that's been chopped out of this film that deals with that, but they've just gone now. Nah, we'll just get them to fall in love. Yeah, and again, it's just lazy writing, lazy filmmaking. It really just to is. Do with that. I want to talk about Bill Paxton as well, if that's okay. Yeah, Since we're talking about the performances. This was one of the few films that I've ever seen Bill Paxton in that I did not like him. I was bored at this point because I love Bill Paxton. And I like this character that he plays mm. in most films, which is pretty much Hudson from Aliens. Yeah. But at this point, watching this film, because there's nothing really interesting going on, I was watching it thinking, I've seen this, it's, I, I, I'm done. Yeah. And even when I watched Predator 2, which is, again, the same character as Hudson, I'm down for that. Yeah. I don't know what it is about his character in this film that I just, <sighs> at no point was I on board with him or his performance and i love bill paxton there's no interesting quirks with that particular character no unlike some of the other hudson variants that he's played in the past where there are certain things that do differentiate him from film to film but it's another one of those things where can you describe the character without describing what they've got or what they look like or who played them yeah there's nothing you can say about this character no, at all. No, simply all you can say is it's Bill Paxton. Yeah, it's Bill Paxton playing Hudson with a bad wig. Yeah. <laughs> with an 80s mullet. That's, yeah. that's what's going on. And um, and this just goes down to the writing. There's no clear arc for him. Yeah. The only reason he's there is so he can steal Byron, who is the android character, and that Mark Hamill's character can chase them through these different locations. That's the only reason why Bill Paxton is there. There's no other function for his character. No. And his character does have a turnaround moment towards the end of the film where he decides he's not going to take Bob Peck's androids to the authorities and cash in on that bounty. But it feels like it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. I don't really get a sense of where that decision came from. Because their relationship seems exactly the same as when it first started. Because they're always amicable with each other from the very beginning. Yeah. There's never any kind of hostility. There's no period where they actually start warming to each other and start realizing, oh, we have to work together. And there's no point, really, he starts to realize, oh, he's more than an android, he's a human. That just happens. It's not a gradual thing. It just happens. And it's definitely not the encounter the night before that made him change his mind. No. Yeah, is that the uh, the scene with the android? No, the, well, that's the well, that's the scene with Bill Paxton and woman number three. Who was that character? I had no idea. It's, it, uh, somebody's daughter, apparently. That yeah, they somebody's said afterwards. daughter. Afterwards, yeah, it's said because I, honestly, I was watching it again. I was like, now who the fuck's this? Who is this character? Because I have no idea. We don't even see him meet her. No. I mean, we're going into Bill Paxton and his women in this film. It's just... We're going into Bill Paxton. Well, yeah. Yeah. But um, (laughs) every single woman that he interacts with in this film is just inappropriate. Yeah. Because the first time we see Bill Paxton, he literally just molests a woman. 
<laughs> yeah. in full view of everyone else in the kitchen. Uh, literally, and this is meant to be a family film as well. Like. I'm laughing because of the absurdity of yeah. this situation, so, to be honest. The first time we meet Bill Paxton, he's literally just full on grabs a woman's boobs in a working kitchen. As you do. As you do. It's implied that they've got a thing going on anyway, and he's just playing, but yeah, still I, quite inappropriate. I thought he was setting up some kind of relationship that was the film was going to go on to incorporate somehow, but she yeah. disappears after no. that scene. This one's the worst one, and he doesn't even come into actually any physical contact with her. There's a woman that's doing some sort of new dancing in a cave. Yeah. And he's going, oh, yeah, do that for me again. And he keeps flying around. And uh, she <laughs> notices that there's a plane, and then she shuts her curtains, as if that ever happens in this post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> and then, yeah, this woman is woman number three, who's the girl that he meets at the party in the hedonist society. Mm-hmm. They're just suddenly in bed. And there's this whole part about her talking about, oh, my boobs are too small and things like that. <laughs> and it's just like, what? What? Why is this PG? <laughs> Family film, guys. The film acts like his character is supposed to be desirable. Mm. You never get the, the idea that actually, wh- why are these women falling at his feet? Never get a sense of why. Must be the hair. Yeah, it's de- it must be the hair and the, the plane. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I just don't get it. And the funny thing is, this character is not even the worst character in the film. <laughs> No, this is one of the better characters. Yeah, yeah, this is one of the more <laughs> fleshed out characters that this script has to offer. We have to say that the script is by Tony Caden, who we looked up online and can find nothing about. So no. I think this could be his only script, maybe. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's like Gary Kurtz's godson or something. Yeah, or is this like an anagram for somebody else? Yeah. Or, I don't know. This is another thing, and I, I, I don't understand how anybody could think that this script would take off. No, I don't understand the thought processes behind somebody reading the script and going hey this would make a great film i mean i would like to read it just as an idea of what it was on the page that attracted the kind of talent it did because there must have been something there yeah but there's one person that we haven't spoke of yet Mm. and we really do need to speak about him it's our star wars connection our second star wars connection that's mark hamill Mm. luke skywalker in this film and he plays the bounty hunter will tasker will tasker yeah who's a taken byron to tasker sorry that's awful but yeah what did you think of mark hamill in this film and what do you think of the choice to be in this film i don't mind him in of himself and i hold no issue with him trying to change his image yeah because that's always a good thing to do but there's nothing for him to work with no on this at all there's no character there for him to play yeah the most distinctive part of his character is the way that he looks which is very much like Rutger Hauer does yeah, in Blade Runner it's Rutger Hauer with a beard exactly yeah and that's another thing he's the reason he's got a beard because he doesn't want to look like Luke Skywalker mm-hmm. and he has a cool looking plane and yeah that's all that there is to his character there's probably one scene that kind of works which is the scene in the bar which is the very first time he meets Matt, which is Bill Paxton's character, yeah. and they're having a friendly chat in the yeah, bar. Yeah, it then sounds all, quite and affable at first. In fact, that's probably one of the only scenes that works mm-hmm. in the whole film. Um, it's in because itself. something happens. Yeah. There's a twist in the scene mm. where they're summing up each other as characters. Mm. They think they've got an idea of who each other are, and then that changes. Yeah. It's the only scene where something actually happens yeah. during a conversation. And, th- and that's where the Western elements of the film come to the forefront the most, yeah. and where they work the most. Following that scene... All he's doing is just chasing the other characters and there's nothing more to him. We don't spend much time with him. No. He's in the film very little. And even when we do see him, the character doesn't progress beyond this starting point. Mark Hamill's character should have been the main character. Yeah. It should have been his relationship with this android that changes as the film goes on Mm. while he's being hunted by other bounty hunters that want to collect this bounty. Because that seems to be where they're going. Yeah, it does. When when the film sets up, that's where you think it's going to go. And I think that's why I was so kind of jarred by this film because it completely changes after it sets up this world. Yeah. It completely changes what type of film it is and who it's established as your lead characters. Mm. Your leads, the, the antagonists. Well, to talk about Mark Hamill for a second, I actually quite like him in this film, Mm. even though the material for him is, well, quite dog shit, Mm. (laughs) to to be gentle. But yeah, I I quite like him, and I think this was absolutely the right choice, but the wrong film. Yeah. Because he excels with these type of characters. I mean, his Joker is probably one of the most beloved Joker voices that anybody's ever heard so he he has the ability to be scary and menacing and stuff like that but the material never really gives him chance to do that yeah and to be honest i think they should have gone the other way with it and set him up as like a dirty harry type character who's 
opinion of this android that he's with changes as the film goes on. Well, it's a funny thing, actually, as well, because on the video box, somebody describes this film as a post-apocalyptic Dirty Harry. But who's that referencing? Who's the Dirty Harry in this film? There isn't one. There really isn't. It sets up Mark Hamill's character as possibly being that character and then abandons that 20 minutes in. Yeah, because it doesn't place him at the centrepiece of this. No. He's really much on the peripherals of this story. He is, yeah. And there's some interesting ideas as well that they just don't play on, like the idea that he thinks he is the law, yet there's no authority there for him to even report to. And even Belitsky questions him doing reports and things like that, like saying no one cares about those anymore. And he has this undying belief that all this stuff is important. Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting thread that they just don't explore at all. Their character's almost deluded into thinking that he is the face of the law. He's a Judge Dredd type character. Yeah, he is, yeah. Which, again, is, is Dirty Harry in the future. Yeah. A lot of people have but, compared um, Dread to that, film, so I get that. The film totally and completely wastes it. It doesn't recognise that it's something they could do something with. It's no. like uh, the, the writers didn't realise the potential of what mm. they had. Shall we talk, actually, about some of the cameos in this film while we're talking about performances? <laughs> yeah. Because this film does uh, really three major cameos, and we've yeah. talked about two of them. We've said F. Murray Abraham turns up at the end in this yeah. kind of headness group. Mm. And, yeah, sure, he's given a few lines. He's given something to do. Mm. He's only in one scene majorly. Yeah. And then you've got Ben Kingsley as a character called Avatar, and he's part of a separate culture. Yeah, that uh, worships the wind. That worships the wind, yeah. Not that kind of wind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even when they introduced those characters and then Bill Haxon goes, oh yeah, the wind worshippers. And I was like, <laughs> what kind of wind are you talking about, Bill? I can see them putting their hands together to pray and like, beans, beans, the musical fruit. <laughs> Praise be the beans. <laughs> it just seems like every one of these actors has just been on set for a day. Yeah. And they've just got as much as they can out of them. Like even when they're making a documentary, you can tell that they're just, they're filling them off set when they're in a break but they've literally gotten from that day. Yeah. Because they're only made up for one scene. Mm-hmm. In fact, the only actor who looks like he did two days on the job is Robbie Coltrane. Yeah. Who plays Montclair. Yeah, he's a smuggler of sorts. And he's a friend of Bill Paxton's. That's it, yeah. And he's in a bath, along with Paul Reynolds, who's one of my other favourite actors. <laughs> he's literally just in this film for doing nothing. And yeah, we wander into a completely self-contained scene involving Montclair and Mark Hamill's character, it's designed to demonstrate how ruthless Will Tasker is. Yeah. And how he gets his prize and he's just willing to get rid of anybody who's morally unjust to uh, further his cause. But it's just completely unrelated from the main action that we don't really care. No. And we don't even get to see the resolution of what's happened. I mean, we have all these characters, even just these main characters, even Paul Reynolds' character who's just a dog's body. In the aftermath of this shootout, we don't see anybody get killed. But when they're burying all these bodies, we don't even get to see these main two actors in the forefront. We don't even get to see them buried, so we don't even know what happened to them. I bet they weren't even there that no, day. No, they just I, I obviously didn't have time to film them. And I found that scene to be entirely strange because it's supposed to be one of the first big action moments in the film. Yeah. But it's shot in such a way that it's so confusing. I didn't know anybody had actually been killed. Yeah. And it's so boring. It's just simply they open fire and it cuts to two quite long-held shots on Mark Hamill and Kitty Aldridge as they fire at this group. Mm. And there's a couple of quick cuts, but you never get a sense that anybody's actually being hit or anybody's actually being hurt. And then it just cuts to bodies being buried. Yeah, I get the sense that the editor, Terry Rawlings, whether he edited the scene or not, it's like he'd seen Jaws the Revenge and <laughs> wanted to replicate the style yeah. of Jaws the Revenge by showing lots of unrelated disconnected shots, but never actually showing the main action. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling that it's actually the footage, because Terry Rawlings is a great editor. I have a feeling that he's simply doing the best with what he has, because I don't think they've actually covered that footage. There's um, something from Gary Kurtz saying that a lot of the more violent scenes, which includes all these bits, which would obviously make these parts coherent, none of those things were ever shot. So it seems to me that there's crucial coverage that's just not there. So whoever's editing this doesn't have any of that to work with. Mm -hmm. There's so much unimaginative staging. Yeah, and the blocking as well. There's nothing interesting going on whatsoever. I mean, the one that really stood out to me is the whole scene outside on the airstrip Mm -hmm. where Matt steals Byron. That is probably the flattest, most uninteresting action sequence I've ever seen in a film. Yeah, it's like this Western standoff, but there's no tension whatsoever. It's weird, because this whole film is it's obviously got an A-list budget, it's got an A-list cast, but there's so much of it just feels so amateurish and it feels like a very expensive college project. Well, since 
we're in the filmmaking side of things now. I've really been sitting on this question mm. because I've asked myself it a few times and I'm starting to come up with an idea of where it should be, but I want to ask you first. Mm. Who do you blame? I mean, I think if you've got to blame anybody, I mean, it's got to be Gary Kurtz and Steve Lisberger because they're the ones that are overseeing this thing and yeah. seeing it to the end. I mean, I'm not even sure they did ever see it to the end, but even when you can see the basic film i mean yeah you can still see that even if it was edited to shit there were still problems anyway yeah i think you just got to blame them because i don't feel they have any kind of vision to what they want to do and it, in a weird way it just feels like it's a bit of a cash grab like you're trying to have all these things like create this greatest hits package in order to gain kudos or make money mm-hmm. i mean not that that's not what a lot of filmmakers want to do but because it fails so spectacularly in that yeah. it really emphasizes that point and that he's tried to create something that evokes all these memories of things that are much better than what the actual end product is but he's not putting the effort to really make it distinct or make it just work and obviously, Steve Lisberger doesn't have the skill in order to pull it off in any technical sense either. So these two things were the fact that the story fails, but also the filmmaking part of it fails. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that you've got all these really talented guys, because you've not got these two people to really pull it all together. Yeah, because, I mean, that's it at the end of the day. Okay, yeah, the script is pretty awful, mm. at least as presented in the film. It's pretty incoherent. It doesn't really go anywhere and it doesn't do much. But to be shot in such a plain and uninteresting way, I can't help but level a chunk of the blame at Steven Lisberger's door. Mm. Because there's no excuse, really, for the action scenes in this film to be so uninvolving. Especially because not all of it requires incredibly intricate special effects. You have scenes like this one that we were talking about where there's a standoff that is simply requires a set, your actors, and clever camera work, mm. clever editing. And he fails. He fails. He doesn't build up any tension. No. He doesn't build up any energy. Mm. And I don't think there's really an excuse for the film being that dull in those moments. No. But I have to ask, it seems to me that there's been a conflict over what tone the film should strike. Whether or not it should be a film for adults or whether or not it should be a family film. So who do we blame for that? Because that sounds like a Gary Kurtz issue. Mm. Or it sounds like there's been some real conflicts at some point over what this film should be. Yeah. And I don't think they've ever resolved it. I think for the tone, though, I think you still have to blame Steve Lisberger for quite a lot of it because a lot of the tonal things are in the way that you shot them. Yeah. And also in the performances as well. Like, none of the performances match. Mm-hmm. Everyone's doing their own thing. And Steven Lisberger hasn't taken the authority and gone, right, we're going in this style. He's not reined it in. Yeah. yeah, because you've got certain people that are playing it quite seriously or naturalistic, like Bob Peck. Yeah. And then you've got the other extreme where you've got, like, Kitty Elridge's character. I mean, I'd say that her character is probably the weakest of the lot in terms of her performance. It changes scene by scene yeah, as well. Yeah, it changes, but also it's so over the top when no one else is doing that. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like she hasn't really got a handle on what she wants to do with the part at all. And because of that, it just comes off as, it just it looks embarrassing. Yeah, to be honest, her character especially left me asking, why is she there? What purpose does she serve in the script? Mm. Because Mark Hamill's character, this Will Tasker, if they really wanted to set him up as being this antagonist, I think it would have been better if he was a loner. Yeah, he needs to be the lone rider. Yeah. All she's there for is simply, as a mechanical part of the script, to be someone for Mark Hamill to talk to, Mm. so he's got a few lines, and to be someone for Bill Paxton to pine after. She never has her own identity. Yeah, and because she's such a mechanical part of the script, she's just left floundering in the scenes that she's actually in because she's literally got nothing to do. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that steals Mark Hamill's screen time. In the scenes that he should be there, she's taken all that, but because she has no purpose in the film, she not only takes his screen time, but lessens his impact in the film. Yeah. She is the most problematic character because she is the character in the film that has the most screen time that needs to be there the least. And this is in a film full of problematic characters. Oh, yeah. There's no one character that gets off scot-free. No. But yeah, like you say as well, performance-wise, I don't know what's going on with that performance because no. it seems to be one extreme to the other between scenes. Whenever she's with Mark Hamill, she's kind of cold and steely. Whenever she's with Bill Paxton, she starts to turn a bit doughy-eyed almost they're trying to set her up as a princess layer as well like yeah. she's trying to be cold but but doughy and then at the end of the film she's head over heels for him i don't know where that came from but it's almost like she's reacting against who she's playing against so she's yeah. not quite sure of her own character so whoever she's playing off she almost slightly emulates what they're doing 
when she's playing against Bill Paxton, she's kind of being like Bill Paxton. Yeah. And then when she's playing against what Mark Hamill's doing, she's trying to do what Mark Hamill's doing, and she's not quite. I think she's in this not discussion, we're providing her more character than the film does. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're probably thinking about it more than she ever did. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> more than anybody yeah. ever did, really. <laughs> I would really want to know just how much this film wasted because there are cheaper sci-fi films with these kind of post-apocalyptic ideas that have done more with it. Oh, yeah. There's not even anything like... If they could have just added a few map paintings of broken cities in the distance or oh, yeah. something like that just mm. to kind of flesh this world out because there's no excuse for this world to be so dull and lifeless. It's just the countryside. There's it's the countryside a countryside of, of various yeah, the, the, continents. The, the, there's just a lot of landscape shots of the countryside as it looks right there. Yeah, so we're supposed to set up that this is a dangerous place. We never, ever get an idea of that It's because it, it's just... It's it's the world as it is now. Mm. I really would like to know the excuse that they have for why they never explore that side of things. No. As to the budget, I'd hazard a guess that this probably costs somewhere between twenty to twenty-five million. At its lowest, I'd say about fifteen. Yeah. Just in terms of where they filmed, because this is a film that's been shot at Pinewood. Mm-hmm. If you're a film that's shooting in Pinewood, you're gonna have some serious money behind you. Yeah. Uh, even at this point of time, Pinewood was still like one of the biggest studios in the world and the weirdest thing about this film is that where it's shot and who it's got it just looks so amateurish yeah for such a massive swathes of the film there's one really amateurish thing that this film falls into mm. and it's something that a lot of tv programs did in like the 60s and 70s whenever there was a shot from inside a helicopter or anything like that mm. there's a lot of shots that simply keep the camera low in the cockpit looking up at the characters with nothing but sky behind them through the window mm. and it's clear that most of the crew are outside Side, shaking the helicopter <laughs> that clearly is not yeah, in the air it's yeah. just on some lot somewhere mm. and there are just so many shots in this film that are just that it's such a cheap way to film yeah and uh, we must mention the cinematography is by frank tidy who um is anything <laughs> but tidy <laughs> it's definitely not tidy <laughs> yeah the, actually i was just thinking about it looks like a bbc television drama that was made at the time yeah it does and given the amount of money that's been put into it there's no excuse no it should be so much more than a bbc television special that would have been made for about 300 grand yeah it looks like 300 grand i think that's the nail on the head really in terms of the way this film looks yeah going back to steven lisberger there's a really interesting thing that he says in the documentary that sent alarm bells ringing in my head and i quote him he says if you want to give people a message send a telegram don't make a picture when you're talking about films especially science fiction films or to be honest anything that's not garbage you're always trying to say something with it you've always got a message you've always got something that you want to play on and the fact that he's almost abandoned this wholesale because apparently this is not what filmmakers are supposed to do yeah it almost explains why this film's so dull because it doesn't know where to say or where to go i mean his only suggestion as to what this film is about is pay your dues and trust your instincts which to be honest is still quite wishy-washy yeah and there's potential to home in on a number of ideas especially when you're dealing with this android character because whenever you include an android character or some kind of robot in any kind of sci-fi film it offers you the opportunity to delve into existence and what it means to have a consciousness and stuff like that Mm. it's a sci-fi trope and it doesn't sound like he's done anything with it. it even in the film they play with it later on bob peck's character does develop emotions but they never go anywhere yeah. But in the way that he talks about it, it's almost as if he's been scared about thinking things in that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And even then, it looks like he's been a casualty of the movie business. Yeah. He's just lost all enthusiasm. I mean, if you watch some of the bits where they're making the film, it, no one seems excited. No. It speaks volumes that he never made a film after this and that he's only a token producer credit on Tron 2. Yeah, he is, yeah. Because there was no way that they were going to let him make that film no. on his own. Because... <laughs> uh, I'd have to be very controversial. I mean, Tron Legacy is by no means a perfect film, but it's much more interesting and exciting to watch than the first Tron film. I'm very much of the same opinion. Mm. I don't think Tron is a classic. I think it's okay. I think it's perfectly okay. Mm. But I think Tron Legacy is probably visually more interesting, mm. whilst script-wise probably being the same type of film, Yeah, but it just does more visually. Mm. It's just a step above, in my opinion. It's yeah. not a great film, no. Tron Legacy, by any stretch, but it's better than Tron. Mm. And I think we are going to get killed for that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but 
I'm saying it now because I think when you're talking about stuff like this, you've got to dispense all nostalgia yeah. and just think about it on a basic level. If mm-hmm. you're just putting all these films out, taking away the fact that they were made in a certain period of time and this yeah. is what they had to deal with, but just putting it back in, in basic visual terms and basic filmmaking language and stuff, all films are equal in that respect. Mm-hmm. So you can look at these in, a, in an objective way and... And saying something's a classic because it was made in 1982 and it had some of the first use of CG animation, when in fact, there's not that much CG animation in it. No. Just saying that it's a classic for that. I mean, I know Disney tried to market it as a classic because that's what's written on the DVD box, therefore it is. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, it's not. And uh, taking that into account, despite this film, there's no way that anyone else is going to give him a job. No, no, I think Slipstream has shown him to be a director that has a very limited set of tools. Yeah. And a very plain visual style. I think this is, in a way, one of Gary Kurtz's many mistakes is that he hired this guy to make the film. Any better director would have gone and looked at this film and questioned things. He would have questioned the script. He would have made something a bit more exciting, even if the script wasn't particularly great. Mm -hmm. He would have just looked visually more interesting. In many ways, this feels like a Gary Kurtz film, and Steven Lisberg has been his yes man, Mm. whilst bringing nothing to the table. Yeah. This needed a real James Cameron Mm. to find the story in this script. Yeah. I mean, it looks like key members of the crew knew what they were doing. Yeah. That happens quite a lot anyway. Yeah, but, it does, yeah. <laughs> but you've got some real talent involved here, and it's just unfortunate that people at the top don't know how to coordinate all this stuff. Yeah, there's no excuse for wasting this amount of talent. Mm. There really isn't. And I think that's why I really come down hard on this film. Yeah. Just in terms of the score... It's Elmer Bernstein. Yeah. And this score feels like it's been taken from a different, more exciting film. Yeah. If you listen to it, it's like the the score's pumping away and really, really trying to infuse much of this dull imagery with any semblance of energy. So much so that it feels out of place. Like they've totally out of place. This is stock music they've taken from something else when in fact it was actually a proper commissioned and you know score written especially for this film yeah but because yeah there's nothing interesting going on in the visuals whatever you do your music's always going to slightly feel out of place yeah uh, because of it because as a composer you're carrying the weight yeah you are um i mean this is in his anders martinant phase as well where literally every single score he wrote had an anders martinant on it you know that sort of oh yeah because yeah. <laughs> uh, there's another forgotten film that he worked on he's worked on quite a few forgotten films over the years but the black cauldron Yes, yeah. Uses the Anders Martin a lot. That's the score that actually, this actually resembles quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, incidentally, this score was recorded with the London Symphony Orchestra, which is exactly the same orchestra that recorded Empire and Star Wars. It's all the same stuff, uh, all the same crew. It's just bizarre that you've gone from that to this. It's such a stark contrast. Mm. Okay, so I think we're starting to form some opinions as to why Slipstream has been forgotten and why it's a piece of shit. But maybe the (laughs) film fared better with critics and audiences of 1989. It's time for us to look at the stats and facts. So, first up, I have actually the numbers for the critics. And at Rotten Tomatoes, the film scores a 20% rating with an average rating of 3.6 out of 10. Mm. Which is about right. It's exactly Mm. in line with what I'd expect from this film. I'd expect it to get maybe even a little bit less. I'd expect it to have Highlander 2 numbers just around about that level. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But there is a caveat here. It does only have five reviews. Mm. And I think we're going to find a little bit about why later. I need to say straight up front, there is no Empire review. There is no Roger Ebert review. I looked (laughs) online for some and I could not find Mm. a single real usable review for Mm. this film. And I think we have to go into the numbers to really decipher just why that is. Yeah. So what's the box office for this film? So, Gaz, there are no box office figures at all. (laughs) (laughs) This is a film that was seen by literally no one. Yeah. No one saw this film. What happened was, and this is referencing him making this film at a time that couldn't have been worse for Gary Kurtz, he was going through a very messy and very expensive divorce, almost very similar to George Lucas's divorce earlier on in the 80s, where all of the surplus money that he'd put aside for this film was being whittled away all the way through production. Whether the film was ever actually truly properly finished, because yeah. I imagine this might be a situation they just ran out of money. When it came to actually getting the film out in the cinemas and internationally distributed, there was no money left in the pot. Mm-hmm. Literally, he'd squandered his entire fortune made off the first two Star Wars films yeah. in this divorce settlement and in the making of this film and subsequently went bankrupt 
which is also the reason why this film is in the public domain because literally no one owns this film. Yeah. So this is a film that was made on probably a budget of $20 million, shot at Pinewood Studios, A-list cast, no one owns this film. So even when he would have gone bankrupt, he would have had the option of selling the film yeah. or other companies would have had the option <laughs> of buying it from him. Yeah. And nobody did. Nobody did. No. Nobody picked it up because it never actually got a North American release. No. So even when it was shown in England, which is obviously its country of origin, it only showed in a few theaters. Very, very limited release. Yeah. I imagine. I'm not even sure of how many screens. I'd imagine less than 50. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe 10. I'm not quite sure. There is no information out there to... No. I looked and I scoured the internet for no. any information about a box office. Most I could find is that in Australia, it made yeah. $60,000. Yeah. Which is a pittance. Yeah. And the fact is that it never received a screening at all in North America because no one wanted to buy it and there was no money to getting it there. Yeah. So this is a film that just got it got made. No one saw it and then just slipped into obscurity. Yeah. And yeah, it got put on video, but there's not much else to go on. And I did find a very interesting quote of somebody on YouTube about one of these companies that actually took Slipstream amongst other films. And I did do a little bit of research on this and it seems that this is partially accurate. So I'm just going to bring this up. So this is just literally off one of the YouTube pages where Slipstream can be seen. And uh, it looks like Slipstream was on VHS with a company called Virgin Vision MCG. I'd imagine this is the company that had it on video in the States. Yeah. Because I know it was like entertainment and video over here. This gentleman states, uh, Not a soul who was a video sale, i.e. VHS, profit participant on Slipstream, Communion, The Banker, The Fourth War, and a few other films saw a dime from Virgin Vision MCEG, owned in 1989 to 1990 by actor John Travolta and his manager slash partner, Jonathan D. Crane. They took our millions of dollars odors and instead put it into the shooting budget of the turkey, Look Who's Talking To. And when we collectively sued, they went bankrupt. Crane, by the way, bought himself and his much older wife, Sally Kellerman, matching Rolls-Royce convertibles. Lots of average Joes invested into Virgin Vision MCEG and lost their asses. I personally knew a train conductor on Amtrak who invested most of his life savings. Shame on Crane and Travolta. They stole from us with malice of forethought. And worse yet, after Travolta did Pulp Fiction, he was suddenly earning 20 million plus per picture. That means Crane got his millions too. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> but I did... Do a little Wait, bit more. You've got to say, though, I mean, the money's being put towards a worthwhile cause. Look who's talking to, guys. Oh, yeah. This is real masterpiece. <laughs> Do you not know art? It costs money to make. Yeah. It's the godfather, too, of the Look Who's Talking franchise. Yeah. But just to sort of follow up, because, you know, it's one of these things where it just could be mad rantings from a, a certain individual, but I did look into it a little bit further and did find out that MCEG, which is also a production company that was responsible for the first Look Who's Talking, I think they changed names after they went bankrupt for when they did Look Who's Talking too. But MCEG got sued by the makers of Communion for some rights issue. And that's just an archive from the LA Times. So it looks like there was something dodgy going on there. Yeah, it leads us to believe there's at least some truth to that tale. But yeah, it looks like that this is yet another tale in this sorry epic of this film. Mm -hmm. Because uh, it looks like whatever's happened to this film, none of it's been good. No. Nothing good ever came from this project at all. Because it killed many people's careers. We've got, probably got this film to thank for Mark Hamill's Joker because I'd imagine if this film had done well, we probably would have never seen any of that kind of voice work. He would have been a, an actor who would have been still prominent. And honestly, his Joker has become iconic amongst the TV and video game community. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, I like Mark Hamill. I really wished he would have been more of a star, to be honest. And hopefully we will see more of what he can offer mm. with the next Star Wars film. And the same goes with Bob Peck as well. It's almost a shame that he's now only really known for saying Clever Girl. Yeah. Because there's so much more to Bob Peck. Well, was. He's been no longer with us for quite some time now. And uh, he is a sorely missed British actor. And it's a real shame that he's only known for that one scene, really. Yeah. he's <laughs> Or the... shoot her. He is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of sad that this wasn't a film that took him off as a leading man because if you'd seen some of his other stuff that he did in the 80s you would have certainly have uh, believed that he had the chops to do it yeah because he'd done like 15 odd years on the royal shakespeare company and and done things like edge of darkness mm -hmm. yeah it's kind of a shame that although this film's not very good it's a shame that he was probably even in this film or wasted his time yeah in fact i think the only person who really came out of this film intact other than the guest stars was bill paxton <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
I think it's probably because no one in North America saw it. Because I think Mark Hamill was crippled by the fact that he hadn't been in anything. Yeah, he'd already kind of disappeared from the yeah. public eye. So to many North American eyes, this film was a non-entity. Yeah. Like I said, I, until I stumbled across it, I never knew it existed. No, I was much happier when I didn't know it existed, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> it makes you sad now. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I think that leaves me to just ask the questions. I think we are very close to understanding <laughs> just why this film is forgotten, but I need to ask anyway, why has Slipstream been forgotten? This completely memorable, fantastic film that's exhilarating and exciting and also none of these things. It's just a complete non-entity. I mean, it's not saying anything new. It's not doing anything new. It's ridiculously dull. Most of the performances are shit. And this is a film that you can't even lament for its poor showing in theatres and on video because it's not even as if the film was good. Because sometimes when films just stumble through no fault of their own, this is a film that stumbled whilst being shit at the same time. Yeah. So it's not really got any redeeming features. In fact, the only redeeming feature is the fact that how it even came to be is endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Because it just beggars belief. It is a fascinating viewing experience for that, but it's forgotten for all the right reasons. It is. I have no qualms whatsoever with the reasons that this film has been forgotten because I can totally see why. You've just mentioned a whole host of them. And I think above all, the one thing that shines through is that it's just poorly made. It's not like Highlander 2 where... I admire the intentions of the people involved and their ambition simply got ahead of them and the situation dictated that they couldn't make the film that they wanted to make. It's not like that. It's unfortunately much duller. Yeah. (laughs) There's no risks being taken. It's simply taking a lot of familiar elements and hoping that something sticks, but it doesn't have any filmmaking chops or anybody with a vision at the helm of it. Again, like I say, there is no excuse for wasting such a strong cast and a strong crew on a no vision film so Mm. i can totally see why it's been forgotten yeah and i guess that comes to the next question which we've already partially answered (laughs) is this film one of the best of the forgotten could it be or is it simply best forgotten best forgotten it's best forgotten it really is yeah there's there's nothing more to say (laughs) no really i mean i would say that it's actually kind of fitting that slipstream starts with a man desperately running for his life as I would recommend anyone faced with watching this film promptly do the same. Yeah. Run and don't look back. Okay, and that's all we have time for for today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. Join us next week when we're watching the gunslinger Harrison Ford star alongside a host of sci-fi beasties in everyone's favorite film set a long long time ago you got it we watched cowboys and aliens yeah yeehaw but until then it's bye from myself and tarara from andy bye thanks for listening <laughs>